Hello. Everybody hear me all right? Well, I, there was a time when they asked me to come give this talk where I thought it would be me and about four people in a room because I wasn't sure that fraud prevention would be that exciting for everybody. I, I, I apologize. I, I, I figure there's probably at least one person in here that wants me to teach them how to commit fraud. Um, <laughs> I have three college-age boys, and all their friends ask me the same thing. So we'll try to go through this. Um, we got a lot to cover. Uh, my name's Keith Carlson. I've been in AWS for over six years, back when our entire conference fit into this room uh, to where it is now. I've run fraud prevention ever since I joined AWS. And when I got there, our fraud systems were as sophisticated as an Excel spreadsheet could get. Um, it's evolved a little bit from there. Um, but I've been in charge of it for many, many years. And so at the end, if you have questions, feel free to uh, ask. and. I'll give you my email address at the end, too, if anybody wants to, to reach out to me to have a conversation. Uh, I'm going to try to walk you through an actual real-world example that we went through at AWS to, to show you how we think about fighting fraud and thinking about the components of fraud uh, and how we go about doing this. Um, it's not quite as much a technical lecture about the, the technologies we use, but I will mention and reference the technologies that we use. But it's, um, we'll get started push the right button. Okay, so we'll talk about what the differences are between fraud, abuse, risk, waste, whatever other word that you want to use. How at AWS we think about new fraud initiatives and new fraud things that we're fighting. I don't think that was me. Um, we use a layered approach to fighting fraud, and we're very explicit about how we think about the layers of fraud, so I'll explain to you what we use in terms of the layers of fraud and how we leverage those to make fraud decisions. Uh, I'll talk about the technologies that we do use, but just kind of vaguely. This isn't necessarily a hands-on technical lecture. We'll walk through a real-world use case, and then we'll sum everything up at the end. So the first thing I get into is fraud. What is fraud? Oops. I don't know what fraud is. Everybody tells me this is fraud, that's fraud. Frankly, between you and me, I would say, just get out of the discussion of what fraud is. What you really want to try to accomplish is you really want specific definitions for behaviors that you do not want, and you build the concept of fraud from a series of initiatives around specific data-driven things that you do not want. If you get caught into the what is fraud conversation, I like to refer to that as a beer nuts conversation. So if you want to buy me a beer and take me to the bar, we can talk about what we think fraud is. But when you're actually trying to fight fraud, you need a specific definition. You need a target. Because if you don't have a target, you won't be able to hit it. Um, fraud and abuse are both types of risk. So really, we're risk managers, I guess, in a sense. But as we get further into e-commerce, and like we support services that support Amazon retail as well. So I manage not only AWS fraud prevention, but services internally to AWS that fight other things too. And so like, we like very specific, narrow definitions that you can focus in on. We've got stolen credit cards, compromised accounts, um, sign-up fraud, credit card fraud, uh, botnet fraud. And then we've got this one that we're going to talk about today, intentional non-payment, which I think is a relatively unique thing to us. And I'll define a little bit about what that means. But essentially, at AWS, one of the things that we did when I got hired uh, I came in and I was meeting with our senior management team and they came in and they said, well, essentially the way this business works is, is that 
we sign you up with an email address and a couple of pieces of information, and then we give you a million dollar line of credit. And you're supposed to stop fraud from happening. I'm like, all right, like what does that even mean? Like that's insane. So I came in and I was like, you know, fighting fraud here is going to be relatively easy. And I gave them a list of things that we should do. And they were like, no, 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 and no. And I'm like, well, why not? And they're like, well, it's all about the customer. And so we had to, we had to balance what was easy for the customers versus the friction that we would allow. And so like really putting strict things on customers like verifying a credit card was like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And so it became a, an interesting challenge to fight fraud at AWS. So when we start a new fraud initiative, we do four things. And we get somewhat explicit about these things because when we're having new people or people that aren't familiar with the space, it becomes easier to give them a framework than it is to kind of say, we're going to make this up. So we always define as best we can with data the activity that we are targeting. We have regular reporting that we gather because if we have a good data-based definition of what it is that we're trying to prevent, then we actually report on that regularly. And we report to everybody on that regularly. So my management chain sees the new things as soon as I do. There is no filtering or changing. We pull out the definition and we throw it out there for everybody to, to talk about. I'm going to talk about something that sounds kind of Amazonish, but really I think applies to a lot of things. We use tenants. And we'll talk about tenants, and I'll give you some examples of tenants that we use. Uh, because really, one of the big problems that you have in fighting fraud is the ambiguity of what fraud is. And, and really, a lot of my job is talking to people that either say, oh, well, I'm never going to have fraud in my service. Eh, wrong answer. Or they're trying to pull me into a conversation of like, well, I know this is fraud, and I know that's fraud. And I'm like, OK, well, how do you know that? And I get a lot of like, well, it's obvious. And if you get into too many judgment-based decisions, you'll make mistakes. And if you make mistakes, you get a management team that's nervous about letting you do your job. You get into that situation, and pretty soon you're in, you're in this spot where it's nothing but a disaster, because the reality is, is that you can't make decisions, you can't move fast. And that's exactly what the fraudsters want you to do, is to move slowly. And then the technical tools, and we'll, we'll go through those. So tenants. What are tenants? Tenants should be the thing that makes somewhat ambiguous trade-offs easier to maneuver. So it's a framework for having a conversation. So I want the tenants to, to be able to bring in a new software development engineer, put them on a project, have them read and understand the tenants, and then go have a conversation with a vice president of a department and say, well, no, we can't do this or that because of these reasons. Here's how we're looking at the problem. They get everybody kind of in the same, in the same boat. I, we publish our tenants. We let our, the people that we're fighting fraud for read our tenants and approve our tenants. And we try to do these. The primary goal of them is to make hard trade-off decisions and to move fast. So let me give you some specific examples. And these are ones that are actual tenants that we've used in some of our fraud fighting initiatives before. So financial loss is not as important as the risk of a mistaken termination. It's a pretty bold statement. What if the financial loss is so high you don't have a business anymore, right? So we're very clear. And so if I have an employee on my team or a partner on my team that knows this tenant and somebody comes to him and says, oh, this is too big a problem. This is too much money. You need to take this out right now. They say, well, look, if you look at our tenants, that's not how we operate. So we won't make that decision. And so they're really designed to try and push these conversations 
uh, along. Now, tenants are never perfect. And so we keep changing our tenants, we keep revising our tenants, and we keep putting our tenants in front of management. And once they sign off on the tenants, the conversations become really easy. And this really allows us to deal with very senior leaders throughout AWS and in our partner community quickly. Because you get into these same discussions about how do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? We should do this. We should do, oh, I think we should think about it this way and that way. Our tenants are what drive us. They're what lead us. They're how we operate. So let's talk about the layers of fraud prevention. We have four layers. We possibly have a fifth. We're, we're still uh, defining what we think of as our fifth layer. Prevention, detection, enforcement, and containment. This is our life. The layers may be slightly differently, slightly different in different organizations and different companies, but they are fairly clear layers. And the reality is, is what you really want is prevention. Because if you get prevention, it never happened. You blocked it at the front door, nobody ever saw it, there was never any problems, it was all good. The problem is, is you can't start in prevention. If you start in prevention, your false positive rate, the number of legitimate people you're going to hit, it's going to be terrible because you haven't detected. You got to detect first. If you don't have a de definition and you don't have detection, you don't know really what it is that you're trying to stop and you don't know if that's the only thing you're stopping. Because while you measure false positives, the number of customers that call up customer support and say, you made a mistake, I'm really legitimate, here's proof. That's great, that's really great data, you'd love to have that. The problem is, is that you get a vast majority of the customers that say, oh, the heck with it. If you're gonna block me, I'm gonna go someplace else. And so your false positive rates are pretty much always underestimated. And so prevention is what you want, but unless you have detection, you know what your detection is, and you're sure that you're using a surgical knife to take that out, you can get into problems. Enforcement, how do you finally remove somebody? Like I showed you our customer experience tenant. If somebody, we think somebody's fraud, and we, do we just terminate everything? What if we're wrong? You wanna talk about having a bad day, come in one morning and find out that your EC2, your entire EC2 or your entire AWS account is no longer there, you call up and say, hey, what the heck? Like, I think you guys made a mistake, and we're like, oh, we're sorry, but we deleted everything. You can start over if you want. We refer to these internally as business extinction events. They're not really tolerated <laughs> at all. And so once again, our tenants go back to this of like, we're willing to incur pretty heavy financial loss, but our enforcement mechanisms are kind of tricky because one, we're gonna tell you, hey, we're gonna take an action on your account in 24 hours if you don't contact us. Then in 24 hours, when you don't contact us, we take an action on your account. But then we say, if you don't contact us in X number of hours after that, then we're actually gonna terminate these. And we go through this entire process which has many different edge cases and many different uh, scenarios before we actually take the action to potentially create a business extinction event. We want to avoid that at all costs. And then finally, containment. The reason people use the cloud is because they want to be contained, right? Obviously not. Uh, it's supposedly the world of free and unlimited, in well not free, unlimited resource usage, right? And so containment limits are really tricky. What we want to do is we want to find out how a legitimate customer builds versus how a fraudster builds and we want to find out that level that we can put in place that cuts off the fraudster but lets the legitimate user never know that they exist. And so containment is something you can do for blast radius. In a more traditional business, like in our retail business, containment comes in when somebody wants to order 
a hundred of something that you wouldn't normally order a hundred of, like televisions, right? And so they have containment as well, where it's like, whoa, no, we've got a problem here. So it applies to all businesses. For AWS, I, I drew up a quick graph to kind of give you a little bit of a view of how we view it. You've got your registration, because there's a series of events that kind of make it a little bit clearer that you want to do a deeper dive evaluation. But over the life cycle of an account, you've got your prevention, which happens between registration and your first service launch. So we actually have time post-registration to still take an action against an account that we count as prevention, because you never did anything, right? And then once you start using, it's about how much can we can contain or enforce against you. And enforcement happens later, but how much we can contain you. And detection's everywhere all the time. We're always trying to detect, always changing our detection. And because we think about this in layers, uh, we can reuse parts of our detection. We can reuse parts of our prevention. We can reuse parts of our containment and enforcement, which get, allows us to move faster every time we fight a new type of fraud outbreak or new type of fraud we now can move faster for the next one because we have components that are reusable. And that's one of the reasons we think in terms of layers. And whenever you're trying to traverse multiple layers, if you write solutions that go through multiple layers, you won't be able to reuse it for anything else. So as soon as a new type of fraud comes up, you're back to the drawing board of figuring out all of the pieces you need to build to stop it. And then, the slide with all of the technical graphics on it. We know that we're blessed being inside of AWS because we get to use all of these wonderful tools. And so we use Kinesis Streaming, we use S3, Redshift for doing back lookups, we use machine learning, Lambda, RDS, we use all of these tools. And many of them don't take lots of modification in order to be able to use in a fraud pre prevention system. And so we, we're very, very, very blessed. We also have all kinds of data analysis, decisions, investigation types, all different kinds of things that we do, and I've tried to capture just a little bit of the, of the things that we do. Um, I, I think the last time I checked, we were up to, I think it's two trillion pieces of data a day that we look at at this point. And so uh, our, our, it's gotten a little more sophisticated than spreadsheets. Maybe spreadsheets with macros, something like that. And so now what I'm gonna try to do is I've kind of given you how we think about fraud how we think about layers, how we think about tenants, and how we go about dealing with, with fraud. I'm gonna to try to walk you through a real world example and try to get through here in the next, say, 30 minutes or so of a real world example. And so this was intentional non-payment. So what is intentional non-payment? It's probably something that most people in the fraud industry have not heard about before. Essentially what it is is that it's somebody who creates an account, uses services, and has no intention of ever paying for them. And so they may seem legitimate at registration, whatever, but at some point in the future, when it comes time to pay the bill, no. So it's, it's incredibly hard to determine somebody's intent. And so this was a problem that we had, and I'll, I'll walk through it. So just a little bit of background real quick. How do we measure fraud at AWS? And I talked to you about the fact that we have enforcement workflows that operate over time, so we're actually holding capacity. That would be sidelined capacity. Those are notification periods telling you that we're going to suspend your account and then periods before we actually terminate your account. That's all running. That's all live services. And so that's going to be sidelined capacity. Active fraud means we caught it, 
We know what it was, we know the exact amount of it, and as of today, we can tell you exactly what the dollar amount is that's already been used, and that's active fraud. Projected fraud is the interesting thing of, you can always report fraud through today, and it always looks like this. It always is going down today. You know why? Because you haven't caught them all yet. If you could catch everything instantaneously, you'd have a flat line. But the reality is, is it's always dipping down because there's some percentage of the accounts you always catch later. So we have this concept of projected fraud because if we didn't, we would always be looking like this and instead we want to look like this. And so over time, we know what percentage of accounts we catch later versus catch in real time. And so those are the three things, three ways that we deal with fraud. And our prime tenant is trust busters, business extinction events, the customer experience, those two tenants that you saw applied in this particular case. All right, so now let's go into the real story. Here it is. Our story begins. This was our fraud graph. Looks good, right? We're going to have a party. Things are going to be great. All right, is it really good? Is this really what you want to see? We'd never seen levels this low before. Where'd they go? Did they just give up? So we were feeling good for weeks, and we said, OK, everything's great. And when it got this low, we finally had a meeting and said, you know, when things are too good to be true, maybe they're too good to be true. So how do we know whether we caught all the fraud? I get this all the time. I'll go to a new service team. Oh, you don't know if you caught all the fraud. There could still be a whole bunch of fraud out there that you don't even know. So how do you find out what ground truth is? Right? It's a hard problem. So we went back and we said, all right, we're in the business of leasing services to people and getting paid for those services, right? So if something gets leased, gets paid for, and it never gets disputed, that's not fraud, right? That's what we do. We lease, we get paid. If it never gets questioned, that was legitimate usage. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that we lease that for one reason or another, we never get paid for. And if we never get paid for it, might be legitimate. There might be a reason why we wouldn't get paid for something. But it also might be fraud, right? So what are those areas? Bad debt, just as a, a quick definition, that means that it's money that we tried to collect from customers, couldn't, and we finally have given up trying to collect it, right? You got chargebacks. That means after you charge somebody's credit card, they come back later and say, ah, no, this was a mistake. It wasn't me. Take that off my charge, right? Then we've got the forgivens and refunds. This is my son in college going, yeah, dad, sorry. I started 10 instances for a test and I forgot about them for three weeks. So the bill's $400 now. And I call up and I say, can you please forgive me for this? And so we have forgivens um, that happen as well. And there's a whole bunch of these different areas. And then we've got the stuff that we've marked as fraud, right? And so we look at all of those areas and we say, okay, what's going on there? Well, our fraud was almost zero. Our numbers look great. Bad debt was going up quite a lot. Our chargebacks, they were going up, but it was mild. And our forgivens was stable. It was within the predicted range. Okay, so let's build a definition around bad debt. Because what we noticed around bad debt, the thing that was going up dramatically, the thing that was, you know, shooting for the moon, 
was people that signed up used large, instance, large expensive services, not just instances, but large expensive services, and never paid us a dime. That went from almost zero to a rather large number over a short amount of time. So we made a definition, we gathered the data, we told management that we thought we had something going on, and bingo. The black and gray used to be fraud. All those pretty colors is what the reality was with regards to our new intentional non-payment definition. Okay, so we thought we were good, we're not. But it doesn't look too bad. The trend isn't like going through the roof yet. So let's go back and let's look at our base models and let's go through our layers. Let's think about this a little bit. So if we look at our layers, we've got registration clustering models that we use, right, for prevention. So let's see if we can tune our clustering models to detect this new type of fraud to see if we can identify these folks, right? A lot of this was started with EC2 launches first. That's not always the case with fraud at AWS, but in this particular outbreak, we noticed that there was a commonality there. So let's specifically look at first launches of EC2 and see if we can adjust our clustering models to stop it there, right? And of course, the usage curves, like I said, you went from nothing to expensive services really fast and never paid for us, which was a new model that ended up being bad debt. Uh, we think we can build something for anomaly detection to say, like, normal usage curve, fraudster usage curve, all right, let's try to, let's try to look at those, right? So we did all of that, and we adjusted all of those, and we took all of those parts and pieces, and we said, you know what? It hasn't gotten that bad. We're probably in a good spot. So we think we've, with some of this stuff, we're going to be okay. And it went up. Not bad yet, but it went up. So it took most of week nine for us to get our data, and now we're into week 10 to update our reports. So we've now detected it. Great. We've defined it. Great. We're reporting on it. Great. We've built our tenants. Great. So what do we do next? Well, we did a deep dive now that we had the data and we were reporting and we realized that our detect detection mechanisms were not nearly as effective as we would have liked. So prepaid cards are legitimate payment instruments and we realized a lot of intentional non-payment was from prepaid cards. But being Amazon, when I mentioned to our senior management that prepaid cards was the problem and maybe suggested that we should stop taking prepaid cards because that would be a quick way to solve the problem, I was met enthusiastically with the response of, wow, this is a big opportunity for us because if we can keep taking prepaid cards, a lot of our competition doesn't. And there's some places in the world we're the only people who take prepaid cards. That means we have an opportunity here if you can just go fix this. Great. And it's also good for our customers, right? Because we want to allow our customers to do what it is that they want to do in the way they want to do it. And so if, if our job gets hard, but it's good for the customers, that's kind of an okay thing for uh, Amazon to deal with. And if you go back to our tenants, financial loss isn't our biggest driver. Customer experience is. So we're kind of stuck with it, right? So we tried calling cardholders. They lie, because they're the fraudsters. I got all the money in the world. I'm setting up this new research facility and we're gonna buy millions of dollars worth of your services. It's gonna be great. They came up with a whole bunch of stories. I listened to some of the calls from CS. 
They got nothing on my boys, man. They, they can lie through their teeth, and you just have no idea what it is. And by the way, I love my boys, but they're boys and in college. Um, the registration of first launch variables actually looked clean. We looked at them and said, can we find commonalities? So what do you do? How do you find out if someone intends to pay a monthly bill after just a few hours worth of usage? That's tough, right? So what do we do? Well, we realized in retrospect that they were mostly prepaid cards. So we could find out if a card was prepaid. Unfortunately, our software wasn't able to support doing that in real time yet. So we could have investigators call up and say, hey, this, is this a prepaid card? Okay, great. We knew that with the risk curves of people launching a whole bunch of stuff, we had an indicator to say, all right, there's something more we need to do here, right? And we could do some incremental charging for customers for certain services, but we had to do it by hand. So all of this is really ugly. And if we want to actually enforce against these customers, we can only do it manually with scripts. And remember when I talked about business extinction events and making a mistake in a detection? Well, it's far, 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 far worse if you do that to a customer by mistake and didn't even notify them or tell them anything that was coming. You just took their business out. So doing it by hand required numerous oversights, numerous cross-checks, and was a really slow, tedious process. But we started doing all of this. We started doing it. And we felt sure that doing this to confirm intentional non-payment, I went back and I'm like, but I think we got this. This is going to get us where we want to be. So it decreased by a couple of percent. Looks funny because the graph actually went up a little bit. But if you actually look at the intentional non-payment, it actually shrunk just slightly. We enforced against the first group of accounts. We looked at the data. We said, you know what? It's working. We just need to keep doing the manual things, and we got this. And so I reported to, to management. We continue to try to automate. I think we're at the end of the outbreak. Not exactly. Went up. Now it's outside the normal band. Before, when we restated it, it looked like it wasn't going up that dramatically, but now we're headed up. So what's going on? We're now starting to see with additional variables, related accounts, so we've got some stuff that we can do there. Um, the average time to take an action went from 58 days. We were catching them after they weren't paying with bad debt. Now we're catching them in a matter of days, but we're still doing everything by hand. So it still only takes, you know, we can only do stuff once, once a week. But it, it shrunk way down. So we need to implement new negative tables with additional variables to block the fraudsters before they launch. And our detection criteria isn't as great as we'd hoped. So we need to do some more there. So <clears throat> we increased detection. We improved our detection variables. I want to make sure, because there was one part in here that I want to make sure I get right. So give me just a second, because I'm blind as a bat. Yeah, the other thing that was going on is, is that we had a group of fraudsters that actually weren't paying attention to the accounts they were creating. At least that's our supposition. Because the reality of what they were doing is um, they were actually surviving the incremental charges. So they were actually losing money. So we kind of felt like, OK, we're OK with that. 
we think eventually that will kick in and, and, and be okay. So we looked at it, need to improve our de detection criteria, we need better neg tables, we need to do a little bit more with real-time data, tune our models again, should be all right. Okay, good. Remained unchanged, things are, things are going well. So now we need to double down, right? We need to automate instead of taking manual actions, right? Because we're doing a lot of this stuff by hand and I got a lot of people sitting around making phone calls to confirm credit cards and we got a lot of people going back and forth, right? With automation, you get more consistent application of policies. Uh, you can do it any time. You don't have to do it once a week, right? It becomes more real time. The automated neg tables that now get you into prevention and out of detection. In prevention, you should see a much better uptake. If you can do it fast enough, you'll get into discouragement. We tuned our models again because now we have additional variables. So once you have additional variables, you got more data, you got a better chance of catching them with your models. So now it's time to go back and redo the models. We're implementing containment limits now. Okay, great. So now we've got them cut off so that we don't have these big runaway accounts. So we're shrinking the time. We're shrinking the amount of usage, right? So we're putting this all, we're putting them in a box. And then we started thinking about what's our, what's our false positive rate been? And so we gathered, we were gathering the data on this the entire time and we didn't have calls to CS. We didn't have tweets about people with complaining about their accounts getting suspended. We didn't have any of the service teams reporting to us that there were any problems. So we were looking at all channels that we could find, and we found that we weren't seeing a lot of negative blowback from our decisions. So what we decided to do is we decided to say, let's start shrinking our hold times, because if the risk is low, we can be more aggressive, right? And so we started implementing that as well. So all of these things, you know, it's really going to cut it out now because we're, you can't have a big account, nothing. And it went up again. At this point, we were starting to get very frustrated because we've gone through the levels. We have prevention. Got great detection. We're now up to where our enforcement's doing pretty good. We're doing containment. It's still going up. What is going on? So if you look at it, check, 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 check. Fast track's coming this week. Everything else is going great. Lots of predictions, few results. So it was at this point that one of our research scientists got an email from a friend saying, hey, have you seen this? Seen what? We went out and found a YouTube video explaining exactly how to perform this kind of fraud against AWS. <laughs> exactly this kind of fraud. Oh, great. We also found uh, through other channels uh, message boards where people were sharing what they had found from all of these things that you see a checkbox next to and how to combat those. One by one, every single thing. So, what do you do? We went back and we went through layer by layer. What can we do better for prevention? What can we do better for detection? What can we do better for enforcement? What can we do better for containment? And so, and how do we keep continuing to automate? And so we keep continuing to automate. But it added its effect. 
are neg tables that, and does there, I should explain what a neg table is. A neg table, I've used this term a lot and I haven't even explained it yet, apologies. Uh, the way a neg table works is, is that you take a snapshot of the variables that are identifiable variables for a particular account or person and you store those. And then what you do is you run models against those as being the bad people against new registrations. And if you find a match, you know that this person matches your negative table of these are the people that are bad and you stop that new account. So what you want to do is you take a snapshot of what is the bad activity and store it and you compare everybody to that activity and you block the people that are bad. And that's great prevention at the front door because it stops everybody from being able to get in. And so the basics of a fraud prevention system really are gather data, and you want every piece of data you can get on every customer for as long as you can get it or as much as you can afford to store. And then you do analysis on that, and that analysis can be anything from very basic comparison of IP addresses to sophisticated machine learning models. Right, and everything in between. And so you do this analysis. Coming out of the analysis, you make decisions. Either it's a pass, it's a fail, or a we're not sure. And so you've got rules in there for all of the different cases that come out of the back end of your system. And then for the we're not sure, you generally have an investigation queue of people that go through and gather additional information to make an investigation to do a decision. And so from a technical component perspective, when you're gathering the data, we use S3, RDS, and all of these things in, in DynamoDB to store data that we gather during registration. Uh, we, we put together, and there's not only actual variables, there's derived variables. So one of the most common de derived variables is if somebody says their IP address has a geo location of being in Las Vegas, but you look at the time it takes for a ping to get back and forth, and it's, the connection time is six times as long as what would be expected in Las Vegas, you can start to point out differences. The other thing is, is that you can find out what the screen resolution is of a screen. And if it comes across as a cell phone, but the resolution is 1920 by 1280, it's probably not a cell phone. So you look for inconsistencies for derived variables for this stuff too. And so we went back through all of this and we checked every one of our layers and we decided that like this is the worst this was the worst level of fraud we'd ever seen at AWS. But when we looked at it, it was bad results, but man, we'd gone through all of our layers, we'd retuned all of our models, we'd gathered additional variables, we'd done a whole bunch of stuff, and man, our neg tables now, we're seeing a 53% drop in launches, 69% drops in accounts clearing first launch, 75% reduction in the average daily run rate. Really, really, really great signs. But we'd already told management three times that we were, had this under control and they're seeing our actual numbers in real time because we don't massage those numbers. So what do we do? We went back to management and told them, you know what, we're not gonna do more this week. We think we got it under control. Again. So what's interesting in this story, if you think about it, is that there was a day where it kind of went down a little bit and then days where it went up, and that wasn't the indicator as to whether or not we did things that week. What decided what we did that week or not that week was the data that we discovered around and we were reporting about the different things that were happening. And if you can get out of this conversation of fraud is this big mumbo jumbo, you can get into specifics and you can make those kinds of decisions. If not, you get into the conversation of, 
this is terrible, it's really high, I see these accounts, I know they need to go, take them out now. So we told him it was going to go down again. And it went down. So I get to keep my job for a while, <laughs> till the next fraud outbreak. Uh, so finally, it worked. So it was down a lot. Not as much as we'd predicted, but it was down a lot. So what do we do now? We go and we look at the data again. We discovered a whole new batch of badness that was going on. Sleeper accounts. What's a sleeper account? Well, a sleeper account is they had actually been creating accounts for quite a long time and not having any usage in those accounts. None. Nothing to trigger any of our models or anything else. They were so happy that they were able to get in, they were only using part of what it was that they were creating. We ultimately found out that they were actually reselling these accounts. So they were saying, hey, I've already got a whole bunch of accounts in here that you can use based on this YouTube video and all this other stuff that we found out. So here's a whole bunch of other stuff that you can do. Actually, these fraudsters were brazen enough that they were telling people that they would give them accounts and if they didn't work, they had an SLA on being able to replace those accounts with good ones. <laughs> and so the sleeper accounts, we, we realized that there was, a, there was a hole in our enforcement. And that hole in our enforcement was is that every time we added new accounts that we'd marked as fraud, we needed to go back and check every single account against this new data to see if there were additional accounts that could also be fraudulent. That was a pretty obvious one. That was probably more of a mistake than it was anything else. So anyway, what happened? Boom. Now we're back down to the range that we expected. So we talked about Fast Track. I want to go into a little bit more detail about how that works. So with Fast Track, we've now got it automated. And so we're really now with as many accounts as we've taken action on now, we're really sure when an account falls into this category or not. So now, instead of taking sometimes weeks of notification and weeks of talking to customers before we actually terminate an account, we're now down to hours. And this is, should create another really big drop. And so now, this again, is, it's an enforcement workflow. So now we're modifying our enforcement workflows. So we've done detection, prevention, containment, and now we're really focused on enforcement because now that we've got them stopped at the front door, we want to stop the overall, overall impact of the business. So now we're back into the containment or the enforcement model. And we see another, another big drop. And so what's really interesting about fraud is, is that you're fighting against human actors and they will adapt to whatever it is that you do. So often you have forever problems, but the one advantage that you have in addition to prevention, detection, enforcement, containment, is there's probably a fifth one hiding out there, and that's disruption. And the disruption layer is really that you've discouraged them so much that they're going to stop trying because it's just no longer worth their while. Everything they do, you're cutting off. The amount of money that they make isn't enough to be worthwhile. So when you think about fraudsters, you really need to think about them in, in, in there's kind of a story that I tell to explain how you, how you think about it. If you've got an amateur fraudster, they're going to try something. It may work, it may not work, but then they're going to stop because they're just poking around to see what's possible. We don't mind that to a large degree because the impact from it is not particularly large. 
If you're a professional fraudster, you have to make money with what you're doing, and it becomes an economics game. And in the economics game, you either need to steal millions of dollars worth of usage in a single account, which becomes very obvious because I'm setting it, you know, looking at an investigation and, I can, and I'm saying, hey, this prepaid card account from a country that's high risk that we've never seen before is now our 10th largest customer worldwide, or it's fraud. And the alternative is, is if they can't steal from one account, because these are glaring white hot like we've never seen that before. So those are pretty obvious. But when you cut that off, then they have to create a whole bunch of accounts that are small, right? And so we play this game of pushing them into the small and the mini and then clustering as much as we can and gathering as much as we can to stop them. And so really what you want to do is you can manipulate the game to get them to go where you want to. Because the fraudsters ultimately are at a disadvantage. Because one of the things that's been interesting over the last probably six months to a year in our space is it used to be that we wanted accounts, we wanted to cluster accounts. And if you didn't cluster to bad, that that meant you were good. But what's happened is, is that we've gotten big enough and we've got enough history now that if a group of accounts come in and they're completely clean, meaning that they're unrelated to any accounts we've ever seen before, now that looks suspicious. And so we were forcing them to try to create clean accounts. And now when they create clean accounts, that looks bad. So you ultimately have the upper hand. It's just patience, time, gathering data, continuing to tune your models, and continuing to think about how you solve the problem. So now we're headed in, and we're getting into what we think now is a little bit of the disruption phase. They're, they're not able to create accounts at scale anymore. We're pretty much automated in the things that we're doing. Um, when we did the research on, and I'll go to the next week, on week 20, we saw another big drop. But now we're only left with, with a very small number of fraudsters. And we see that they're all coming from a single country and a single financial institution. And so now we've cut out all the noise. The YouTube video is ineffective. Even the comment section in the YouTube video is now like, yeah, I tried this. It didn't work, which we were glad about. But we actually didn't try to take the video down, which was another interesting decision. Um, we could have potentially pursued that, but we kind of felt like if we could get ahead of it, and that's where everybody went, and they go and bang their head against the wall, that means the next time they see something on the internet, they'll be less invested in trying it. So the more people that go look at the video and try it and bang their head against the wall, the better I, I feel. That's a personal opinion. Some fraud prevention groups will pretty aggressively go after takedowns for everything. I just think that kind of leaves a little sense of like, oh, wow, yeah, do you have a copy of that video? Because that probably still works. And so our preference is to kind of do it. But then when we implemented the country-specific rule, then we saw even more disruption and breakdown of what was happening in fraud. And it just continued over a couple of weeks until we were back down to where we had actually taken care of the fraud problem. Now, the interesting thing about this story is, is that it ended up taking 12 or 13 weeks to knock this down. But once we got through this, um, to this day, we still accept prepaid cards. And we've seen many of our competitors do not. Uh, we're glad that we can offer them. Doesn't mean we'll be able to do it forever because it's a challenging problem. But we feel like it's worth sometimes taking the heat and the cost to fix it in such a way that legitimate customers don't know that we've had to go through this because it makes the customer experience easier. 
It makes it seem like at AWS you just sign up with a couple of variables and everything works great. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of work that goes on. So let's kind of sum up here real quick. So what are the best practices that we've talked about today in a fraud prevention program, right? The, the single biggest thing that I can tell you that will make your life easy if you're in any kind of an organization that's suffering from any kind of fraud, define what it is you're trying to stop as specifically as you can with data in unambiguous terms. Make the definition of fraud or your fraud team or your fraud's goals a series of eight or 10 or 12 specific initiatives. Stay out of the conversations about what's fraud and what's not fraud other than from objective definable terms. Develop tenants to allow people to move quickly because you don't want to get caught in hallway conversations or side conversations or meandering conversations or beer nuts conversations as I like to refer to them. Um, and I will tell executives sometimes like, hey, I'd love to have this talk, but only if you buy me a beer because it's not going to help us solve the problem today. Gather detection data early, often. Make sure you have your technical components in place, but remember to keep layered, because if you keep layered, you can move faster. Like if it's just one more Lambda rule for one more decision, that's easy. If I've got to go build a whole new enforcement mechanism, it can take months or years to get right. And what I want to do is to be able to disrupt the fraudsters in their flow as fast as I can. So speed is of the essence. You want to do everything possible to increase speed, because the shorter you can make it, the more chance they have that they're losing money. Move quickly. Fraud is solved in layers. If you think about it, there was no magic bullet to solving this particular outbreak. We were tuning models and adding variables and adjusting. So it was basically this great big wall of knobs, and we continued to adjust those knobs a little bit here and there until the picture came into focus. And that focus was the ability to stop the fraudsters. So you've got to have the data. You've got to move quickly. You've got to keep evaluating. You've got to keep making changes. And learn every single iteration. Learn, 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 learn. And then you've got to, you've got to track your metrics. I have no idea how much we underestimate our false positives. I have no, have no idea how many times we take an action and a customer just decides to go to the competition or not ever use their account or do something else. And so you've got to gather every ounce of impact metrics you can get your hands on every time you think you might have hurt a customer and just assume that you're underestimating like crazy. Just assume that they're way higher than what you're measuring because many, many customers, as soon as they have a bad experience, with you, they just won't talk to you about it anymore. They'll just leave. Lessons learned. We didn't get on top of this until we automated everything. We had to start taking actions by hand, which probably slowed things down, but you got to get to automation. So even if it's an all-hands-on-deck problem, make sure you carve out the people necessary to make sure that they can automate it so that you don't have to have all-hands-on-deck forever. It's the only way you ever get ahead of it. And we needed all the layers in place everything. Until we had our negative tables to have all of these signatures of bad to block new accounts for prevention, until we had fast track to get our enforcement shrunk way down, till our enforcement workflows were automated to take these accounts off, till our detection was dialed in, we didn't stop the problem. And for us, for us, for AWS, it's monitoring all forms of uncollected amounts to be able to get to a ground truth so that you can answer the question of, how do you know there's not more fraud out there? There could be all kinds of fraud and you're just not catching it. And so for us, it was monitoring all the uncollected amounts and dialing that in so that we could know exactly what, what could be fraud and what 
was not fraud. And that's pretty much it for me. So I will open it up. I think I finished a minute and 30 seconds faster than I should have. If anybody has any questions, and by the way, if I'm going to be around through Friday. If anybody wants to talk to me, I can give you my email address if anybody's interested. I'm just kcarlson at amazon.com. So it's first initial, last name. If you want to shoot me an email, um, I still have a couple of slots that I'm going to be free that I'm not in customer uh, situations. So does anybody have any questions? Yes. Right. Right. So the question, I'll repeat it and you can see if I got it right, is basically you went through a compromise, but you're curious of whether or not we build tools for our customers to be able to have the same level of detection that we have. To date, we haven't done too much of that, but we have been in talk with partners recently. Um, and we want to do everything we can to fight the bad guys. I think it's kind of an us versus them instead of this company versus that company. And so much like I think you would see with things like spam or security, et cetera, uh, the industry is starting to open up to be willing to share that information. And so I can't say that I think that we've done that very much or been very good at it to date. But I think that, I think that you, from my perspective, I think you'll see a lot of that over the next couple of years. I think that that's coming uh, uh, pretty fast, as a matter of fact. And uh, I'm, I'm not announcing anything. I'm just saying that like, we're seeing the, the way the industry is changing. Uh, there's, there's a feeling around some of the data in the fraud area that it's like it's the kind of data you wouldn't want to share with people. Yet people will share security information. They'll share spam information. They'll spare, share all kinds of other information. I think we're finally getting it dialed into the kind of information people are willing to share about fraud financial loss kind of fraud. And uh, I think that you'll see a lot more of that, and I think that'll really help fight fraud issues. Anybody else? Yes? Yes. So he said, uh, I mostly talked about prepaid cards, and he was asking, you know, do I just trust regular credit cards and, and other types? No, this was just one specific example of the problems that we had with prepaid cards. I could do a, a, a story on this about a hundred different situations, including regular credit cards, including about specific banks, specific countries. Um, basically, there's kind of this inverse relationship between the amount of legislation there is on financial institutions and how much fraud there is. So there's parts of the world where you can write the entire financial regulations on a matchbook, and fraud is through the roof, typically. And then you've got countries that have tons of financial regulation, and you'll see fraud's low. And so we've had to fight all those problems because we're a global, a global company. So yeah, no, we do not just trust regular credit cards, and we do not just trust other processes. This is one story of 100, at least 100 stories. Yes? Uh, 
Uh, we do not have a, 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 the question was, you know, I, I mentioned device fingerprinting. Does AWS offer a device fingerprinting tool? Actually, I'm not sure in the marketplace whether third-party people um, provide device fingerprinting tools, but AWS itself does not support a device fingerprinting tool at this time. Anybody else? Well, then I guess I'll give you guys a couple minutes back. Thank you very much.